McBride. And thank you to all of you for your love and support for, for our church and Christ's church. Well, let's continue our worship by turning in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. I believe it's page 230 or 238 in the blue pew Bible. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will Take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day... You will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. I can't remember the year. It was 1949, 1950, 1951. A man by the name of George Orwell published a new work of fiction titled Animal Farm. 
And like good works of fiction, this particular work communicated what was very true to reality. As Orwell later said, he wrote the work as a denouncement, as a warning about the growth of totalitarian regimes like Stalin's Russia. The book Animal Farm, spoiler alert by the way, begins with Farmer Jones. And Farmer Jones is not a good farmer. He doesn't really care for his animals. He's too busy drinking alcohol, passed out drunk in his house. The cows, the horses, the pigs are underfed. He's negligent. One day, the animals decide to revolt against Farmer Jones. They fight back, they push back, and they cause him and his workers and his wife to flee the farmhouse. Now the animals are in charge of the farm. They hay the fields, they milk the cows. Life is good on animal farm. All goes well. They enjoy their new freedoms. But in the midst of a leadership vacuum, the pigs pick up the mantle of leadership and begin to rule the farm. And at first, the pigs are just. They are fair. They are generous to the other animals. But slowly, they become greedy and ruthless and deceptive in their leadership. The pigs change the rules of the animal farm, which are written on the barn, to this statement, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. <laughs> As the years and the drudgery and the tyranny goes on, the animals eventually realize they are, un- they are much worse under the leadership of the pigs than Farmer Jones. They work longer days. They have less food, less sleep. They learn that, sadly, the removal of one tyrant very well gets you another tyrant. Orwell's book reveals two truths, at least two truths, about human nature. First, our desire for greener pastures. To come out from under the thumb of the oppressor. If we could just have a loving ruler, a better place, a better government, all would be better. Second, the natural tendency of humans, of people, to use their power, to use their authority for selfish purposes. We see these truths in Scripture. We see these truths in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And they should give us pause and force us to ask the questions, in whom am I trusting for my security? In whom am I trusting for prosperity? And secondly, are we looking to the world to give us something it can't give us? I see two lessons for us in this passage. First, always keep the Lord as the object of your faith. When we come to the end of 
1 Samuel chapter 7, things are going well. Samuel has had victory with Israel at Mizpah. He's ruling well. He has this circuit at the end of chapter 7, judging, ruling, helping the people. He builds an altar to the Lord. Shiloh is no longer existent, but the people go on under Samuel's leadership. He's a good leader. He's not a tyrant. But then a problem arises that shouldn't surprise any of us. Samuel gets old. His judgeship is drawing to a close. This is Israel's last judge. You can read the book of Judges. And Samuel's the final judge. And so he decides to, to install his two sons as fellow judges, stationing them in southern Israel, in Beersheba. And it's understood that they will succeed their father upon his death. But this doesn't sit well with the people. As great as Samuel is, his, his sons fail, up, fail to measure up to their father. They don't walk in his ways. We learn in the early verses of chapter 8 that, that they take bribes, they pervert justice. And so we can sympathize with the people that we don't want Joel rolling, ruling over us. We don't want Abijah ruling over us. These guys aren't looking too promising. It also appears Samuel broke protocol because if you read Judges, Judges don't raise up their own judges. God, Yahweh, raises up Judges. Judges were never hereditary in Israel. They were raised up by God. So why does Samuel appoint his sons? Is this nepotism? Is he overworked, underpaid? We don't know the answers. The text doesn't tell us, but there is some irony here. The people want a hereditary king, a hereditary monarchy, but they already have that in Samuel. They could have a hereditary judgeship. Samuel is already offering Israel a hereditary ruler. So what makes them think a hereditary king will be any better than his sons? That's one question, but a much deeper question that we need to ask is, who is the one really ruling Israel? Who's ruling this nation? How are we to understand a ruler like Samuel? Is he sovereignly ruling over Israel, or is he under another sovereign? As we move through our text, this will become clear to us. And this question helps us to understand the Lord's response to the people's request. The people ask for a king, and this is a huge request. In fact, this makes 1 Samuel 8 one of the most significant chapters in all of Scripture. In all of redemptive history where the age of the judges is drawing to an end and the age of the monarchy begins. And they want a king. They want a strong leader. They want centralized power capable of swift and decisive action. But what they really want is national security. We hear that phrase a lot, don't we? In our modern culture, national security. Nations in Europe want national security, 
So they asked to join NATO. America wants national security. Thousand years ago, it was no different for Israel. They wanted national security. They feared their next leader would be weak and threaten their safety. So they begin to doubt that Yahweh will provide for them without Samuel. They feel the need to take matters into their own hands. And so they do so by asking for a king. But notice this request displeased Samuel in verse 6. The literal the literal Hebrew in verse 6 actually says, this thing was evil in the eyes of Samuel. But more importantly is God's response in verse 7. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being their king. We've already seen throughout the Old Testament that the rejection of the divine monarch is evident in their fawning after false gods, idolatry, the gods of the neighboring nations. Yahweh points this out in verse 8. Of course, he knows full well of their idolatry, but now the people go public. Now they go public and say, we don't want you as king anymore. We want an earthly human king like them. And it's surprising, isn't it, that Yahweh tells Samuel, obey the voice of the people. Give them what they want. Give them what they're asking for. He doesn't send fire from heaven. He doesn't kick them out of the land like he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He gives them what they want. But the people don't fully realize what they're asking for. When it comes to a king, they're wearing rose-colored glasses. And so what Yahweh does in verses 10 through 18, he removes their rose-colored glasses. Oh, you want a king? Is that really what you want? I'll show you what he's like. Listen. He tells them the ways of the king in, in these verses 10 through 18. We could summarize the ways of the kings with these two points. First, he will take, 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 take. Look again in verse 11. He said, they will, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. 14, he will take 15, he will take the tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he will take. 17, you get the point. He will be a chronic, perpetual taker. He'll take their children. He'll take their best vineyards, the fruit of their crops. He'll take their servants, their flocks, their cattle. Verse 17, he will even take them as his own slaves. The king's appetite for wealth and numbers and power will be unquenchable. So he'll continue to take. His greed will run rampant. And so to keep keep his bloated government functioning, he will just keep taking, taking, 
whatever he needs, whoever he needs, to keep it running. In exchange for security, the king will take. And so if the king's taking and taking, the people are giving and giving and giving and giving, even against their will. I recently read that the IRS has a backlog of 20 million files. Do you know what their solution is? To hire 10,000 workers in the next 1.5 years. Not much has changed. The people, they want protection from their enemies who threaten them, but but what price are they willing to pay? And Yahweh tells them, this will be the price. This is what it will take from you. And who will stop all the taking? Think about it. Up to this point, their heavenly king is giving, giving, giving. Land, children, crops, the tabernacle, judges, his protection. He's giving so much to his people to bless them, to make them the holy nation and the priesthood that he ordained them to be. He is a giver. And how they want to exchange the heavenly giver for an earthly taker. But he warns them, I won't save you from your earthly king. Look at verse 18. And in that day when you cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourself, the Lord will not answer you in that day. He will give you the silent treatment. Children, could you imagine falling into a hole in the woods while your parents are taking you for a walk and you scream, Mom! Dad! No answer. No response. That'd be scary. And yet that's what Yahweh is telling them. I won't answer you. I won't come to your rescue on that day. It's as if he's saying, right now, you want to be saved from all the surrounding nations, but one day you'll need to be saved from your own king, and in that day, I'm not going to save you. And so if you keep reading 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you quickly see, wow, almost all of Israel's kings match this king, this ruthless taker. We read right here in chapter 8. They are takers. The king Israel wants, the king they want, will be to their peril. And when that day comes, Yahweh won't be there for them. And yet we read in verses 19 through 20, despite the Lord warning them of this, despite him telling them this is how bad it's going to be, they still want a king. And he gives them one. Now, before we can move forward, there, there is a thorny issue we need to resolve. Was the request for a king, was it a sinful request? Was this wrong for the people to ask? Because by all appearances, it looks sinful. We, we know it displeased Samuel. We know that Yahweh said, they've rejected me as king. But as readers of the Old Testament, especially 
Genesis and Deuteronomy, we know that there are actually Old Testament prophecies and promises of a king. We have royal promises. We don't have time to look at all of them. Let's just look at a couple first. In Genesis 17, Yahweh tells Abraham, I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. And then in Genesis 49, while Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, he tells his fourth son, Judah, that he is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dare rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now that sounds like a king coming from the tribe of Judah. But the most explicit text about Israel's future king is Deuteronomy 17. Put your finger in 1 Samuel 8 and turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy 17. We're just going to look at a couple verses in this passage. Verse 14. Through Moses, Yahweh says to the people, When you come to the land that the Lord God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing him, doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So there we have it. The Lord in verse 15 of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, the Lord gives sanction for Israel setting a king over themselves. And we also see, don't we, in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, the Lord prohibiting being a taker. He he shouldn't take many wives. He shouldn't take many horses. He shouldn't take much silver and gold. But, But you can have a king. And so in light of Deuteronomy 17, in light of 1 Samuel 8, is this request so bad? The problem in chapter 8 of Samuel is motive. What's the motive of the people? Well, we see in verse 5 and in verse 20, the people want a king like the kings of the nations. Even though the Lord promised a king long ago, their motive is not Godward, it's manward. It's, it's not heavenly, it's earthly. They're no longer trusting in Yahweh to provide for their national security. 
No more do they want to trust in him to fight their battles and win their wars. Instead, they want a physical human king to look to. And so instead of trusting in Yahweh to care for them and protect them, their faith is now looking elsewhere to a different object. The truth is, Israel already has a king. His name is Yahweh. And he's not only Israel's king, he's the king of heaven and earth. And he has repeatedly demonstrated his royal, his military power and victories for his people. And all of Israel's rulers, whether it's Moses or Joshua or Gideon or Samuel, they were never meant to be a substitute for Yahweh. These rulers were sub-rulers under Yahweh, serving the people. They constantly were pointing the people to him. It made me think of shepherds, pastors. Your hope, your trust is not ultimately in the pastors of this church, the shepherds, but in Jesus Christ, the chief shepherds. And yet he has ordained, he has placed under shepherds, under him, to help care for his people, to lead his church. Or another analogy, I think of vice-regent. America doesn't really have vice-regents, but England did. England would put a vice-regent in in India because the king of England, he can't be in England and India, so he puts his vice-regent there to rule in his stead under his authority. That is God's design. Even the king that we read about in Deuteronomy 17, he was to be a king of Torah, of God's law, ruling under God's law. He was to be nothing like a king of the nations. So the very king that that Yahweh promised Abraham and Jacob and Israel, he is finally fulfilling that promise now, though it comes through, through this sinful request, this sinful mean, through sinful people. He's fulfilling this request. And so I think there's a, a lesson for us here, that, that first, sometimes the Lord grants requests of sinful people as a form of judgment upon them. Because Israel's king's they will inflict oppression upon the people. And this will be a form of God's judgment on the people for their sin of idolatry against the Lord. Psalm 106, verse 15 says, The Lord gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. So yes, sometimes God gives people over to their sinful desires as a form of Punishment, And so this, this serves as a word of caution to us today, to the church today. That, that if we are engrossed in unrepentant sin, habitual sin, and we're not confessing it to the Lord, we're not returning from it, and then we go to the Lord asking something from him that's against his will, he may just give us that very thing to teach us a lesson about our sin. We think we know what we want, We expect him to give what we want. We think it's best for us, but he knows it's not. And then we may suffer the consequences. This makes us realize we don't always know best, but God does. God always knows best. 
And sometimes he withholds things from us, things we desire, things that, that we think will be very good. He withholds it from us. Why? For our good. Sometimes he gives us things we didn't ask for, we, we didn't want, we weren't praying for, and he gives it. Because he knows it's going to be for his glory, for our good, and for our sanctification. We should always strive to pray as Jesus instructed, not according to our will be done, but his will be done. Another lesson we see in this first point, to always keep our faith on the Lord, is when we're faced with trials and temptations, don't allow your faith to wander away from the Lord. It may feel like, well, this is going really bad. This trial is horrible. I've been praying to God, but he hasn't really responded as I had hoped. So I'm going to start looking elsewhere. But don't look to worldly solutions to your moral and spiritual problems. We see in 1 Samuel 8, we still must look to the Lord. Israel got scared. They got scared. And so they came up with a worldly solution to their problem. But Samuel's response, we see in verse 6, is he prayed. He prayed to the Lord. And we should do the same. We should not respond in fear like the people of Israel when we're threatened or our security is threatened or we don't know what the future is going to look like. We should not respond with human ingenuity to solve, again, our, our spiritual problems as if some little tweak can, can fix it. Again, we can be tempted to put our faith in ourselves, in our abilities, in our creativity, even in our government, in, in our institutions to solve all of our problems. Where all along the Lord wants us to put our faith in him. Granted, sometimes institutions, government, other people, or, or even what the Lord's given us may be part of the solution, but they can only go so far. They have their limits. So when we trust in him, he'll show us in his perfect timing what we need to do, even if all you need to do is wait on the Lord. I don't know about you, but I, I hate waiting. I want it now. But often the Lord says, wait on me. And in that waiting... I will sanctify you. I will increase your dependence upon me. Have you ever faced a trial? You didn't know what to do. You didn't know how to fix it. You didn't know how to respond. You didn't see a way out. How will we respond? Will you respond like Israel? Well, if I just, if I just had what, what they had, then everything would be good. Or will you look to Christ? Will you draw near to his throne of grace? Ask the Lord to help you, to give you the wisdom you need. He will sustain you. He will strengthen you in his timing. Ask a good friend to pray for you. The answer in the Christian life isn't trying harder, but praying more. Prayer is trusting, trusting God more. That he will care for us. 
Keep your faith fixed on Christ. Don't ever let anything take it off of him. Now we come to our second exhortation, which is don't let the ways of the world entice you away from the Lord. In verse 5, 19, and 20, the elders specifically ask Samuel for a king like the nations. They go as far to say in verse 20 that we may also be like the nations. They want to be like the nations. Israel no longer wants to be Israel. They no no longer want to be God's special covenant people. His treasured possession, a a holy nation. They want to be a worldly nation. Israel wants to be like everyone else. They want to fit in. It's like they're giving in to national peer pressure. Israel is now willing to forfeit her unique covenant status with Yahweh, their covenant Lord, in exchange for for national security. Israel is like Esau, willing to sell his birthright, something so sacred and so wonderful, for a bowl of stew. Israel is tired of being Israel. It's like they're heading back to Egypt to be ruled by another pharaoh who's got lots of chariots and lots of horses that that Israel's men will will run. And, And the very thing that makes Israel Israel is Yahweh, her king, her lord, her god, who benevolently reigns over her and provides for her, protects her, makes her holy and sanctifies her, makes her a light to the nations. But now Israel wants to give all that up for a human king like the nations. How could Israel be so foolish? How could they be so willing to give up something so wonderful, so blessed, so holy, so intimate with their covenant Lord for something so fleeting and so worldly, so disappointing? Look how self-focused they've become. Starting in verse 19. But the people refused. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. See all the personal pronouns? So self-focused. Who cares about Yahweh? Who cares about his glory? Who cares about what he's been so faithful and he's done for us for hundreds of years? The Red Sea, Jericho, the list goes on and on of his faithfulness to us, the wilderness. Who cares about him? This is all about us and what we want. They should be saying, yes, Yahweh is king over us. He has made us a holy nation. He he promised and he fulfilled his promises. He judges us. He goes out before us and fights and wins our battles, just like he told Moses and Joshua he would. But no, it's not about him. It's about them. Instead of looking to Yahweh's past 
faithfulness, how he's been faithful to them, they're looking into the uncertainty of the future. And like me and you, the future can scare us. We get frantic and fearful. Instead of, instead of looking back to the Lord's past faithfulness, he's going to continue being faithful. We look into the unknown, and we look to the unknown for the solutions. Instead of looking at our covenant Lord, he's been faithful He is faithful, and he will always be faithful to you for his children. We know some of Israel's kings were were godly men, men like David and Asa, but they were the exception. The vast majority did wreak havoc on the nation. And so Israel's desire to be like the world will be their downfall. Downfall. And the same is true of the church. This is a warning for us, church. This is a warning to us. That if we desire to be like the world, it will be our downfall. Christ may just come and remove our lampstand, like he did in Revelation. Therefore, we we must resist and fight this temptation to be like the world. To resist this very strong pull on our lives to run the church like the world. And oh, the pull is strong. It's constant. It's increasing. And barding us with, with new tactics, new methodologies, new technologies, new approaches, new philosophies that sound, please, that sound appealing. New pleasures that sound attractive. Things that that offer us security. That if you only do this, it'll be well with you. But it's all fleeting. It doesn't last. A A worldly approach to the Christian life will only breed pain. The world says, you shall be hedonistic, for I, the world, am a hedonist. But the Lord says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, I'm holy. So, are we going to conform to the image of the world, like Israel's tempted to do here, or are we going to be conformed to the image of our Savior? The church must never neglect God's past faithfulness. This is why I must preach this book. This is why your elders must preach this book. This is why you must devote your life to studying it. To know God's faithfulness, lest we forget. Because if we stop preaching, if we stop listening, if we stop reading, if we don't meditate, we will begin to forget. We are so easily amnesic and forgetful. To forget his faithfulness and to look to the future, look to the unknown, and be clueless about how to proceed. And then in our willful neglect of God's faithfulness, our hearts will turn to the nations. We'll look to, the, to our neighbors and the institutions and all the things going on in the world and we say, oh, they have it so good. What if we were to be like them? Maybe it would be good for us here. But chapter 8 reminds us, it's not as good as it looks. It's not as good as it looks. Take off the rosy glasses. See the world through the lens of Scripture, through God's eyes. As we think about 
not turning to the world, not turning to the kings of the world. We realize the Lord was in a special covenant relationship with Israel. The Lord is not in a special covenant relationship with the United States of America. The Lord has not promised to fight our our battles or to make us a, a holy nation like he promised Israel. The only way this nation can become a holy nation is by faith in the blood of Christ who makes people holy and righteous. That's how God makes people holy. Through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Our our rulers, they're not required to be Torah men and Torah women, though I wish they were, and some have been. They're not required to be people of God's word. We don't have a a hereditary monarchy in America, though that kind of sounds attractive to some. Instead, we know from from scriptures like Romans 13 that the Lord institutes every leader and every nation, every ruler, whether they are good or bad. And like Israel in 1 Samuel 8, people tend to have a too high of a view of their leaders, too high of expectations of how great they're going to be, how unifying they're going to be, how peaceful it's going to be through this one man or this one woman. And people tend to have too low a view of people's sin and how power and authority can corrupt people and their motives, especially that of leaders. Our founders, for the most part, were keenly aware of the truth of human depravity and how it needed to be kept in check and power should be limited and temporary. But Americans today... They're losing sight of this awareness. And they're beginning with the assumption that that man is inherently good. And what corrupts him is not his own sin, but society. And we know from from history, world history, when, when men get power, they have a tendency to want to hold on to it and keep it at all costs. And so we see, yes, we see most nations aren't heeding the warnings of 1 Samuel 8. But that begs the question, then how are we as Christians to live in such nations? How do we faithfully live as God's people? Whether we're living in America or Sudan or Ukraine or Russia. How do you live in, as a Christian in Russia today? Trust in the Lord. Trust in his care. His provision his protection of his people, not just earthly protection, but eternal protection. Trust in his kingdom that he is building. Trust in his church that he is building and the gates of hell cannot pervade against it. And so we know that that no act of legislation, no executive order, no king, no law can undo the kingdom of God. No government, no ruler can stop his church. It will march on because he is our king. And so we follow him and we obey him. And yes, obedience to Christ will put us at odds with the world. It will make us look different to the world, even laughable at times. Jesus said that following him will be costly We may be persecuted. You may have been persecuted in your life for following Christ. But we refuse to adopt 
the ways of the world, even if we're treated with scorn and contempt. The world has its opinions about God's people, but, but we don't really care about the opinions of the world. We're not living to, to gain or lose those opinions. We care about God's opinion, about his honor and his glory. That's what we care about the most. In closing, not only did the Lord give Israel the king they asked for, he eventually gave them the king they they needed. He gave them the king they needed. And when when they finally met the king that they needed, the king that the prophets foretold, that God promised, when he was finally displayed Before them, the people cried out, We have no king but Caesar. They're still rejecting their king. When they finally meet their king, they crucify him. They reject him. And and Pilate asks them, Do you want me to release him? And they say, No! And what did Jesus do? What did he do in response? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They know not that they're rejecting their king. And that's what sin does. That's what my sin and your sin is. In that moment, it's a rejection of God's reign. No, Lord, I want this. I believe this is best. I'm in charge of my life, so I will have this. That's sin. Rejecting Christ as king. God gave Israel, he gave his church, the perfect, righteous, human king, who is also, also happens to be the king of heaven. The king of heaven had to become incarnate. He had to become the king of earth, which he will always be the king of heaven and earth. The Lord was laying this foundation of of the king that Israel needed. The king that we need is nothing like the kings of the nations. He is totally other. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. I I want you to take all the worldly kingdoms you're thinking of and just throw them out the window. Mine is totally different. He is unlike any human king that has ever ruled. He is the type of king that he's so eager to serve his people he lays down his life for his people to save his people he's the type of king where his subjects they want to praise him they want to obey him they they want to love him because he's so wonderful and he changes their hearts he changes our hearts but the only way to enter his kingdom is not by birth Not by works. It's not through this world. But by trusting that Christ is Lord and King and Savior of your life. And that you need him to rule you. To reign over you. Because he knows what's best for you. You don't. But he does. And he will lead you into this eternal inheritance that he's promised his people. Israel's biggest problem was not national security. 
It wasn't the Philistines. Their biggest problem was sin. And that's our biggest problem. And Christ came to deliver us from sin. On on the cross, he died for our sin. He atoned and cleansed it all in order to save us from being reigned over by sin and to come under his benevolent, holy reign. And so if, if you are here today and you have rejected Christ as king, then either you're looking to something else or someone else to reign over you, or you're looking to yourself to reign over you. But scripture says the way of the sinner is hard. It leads to death, Proverbs says. But to be reigned by Christ leads to life. So come to him today by faith. Come under his kingship, his eternal kingdom. And if you're already in Christ, if you're trusting in him as king, keep trusting. Don't look to this world. Look to him. Let me close with Psalm 118, verses 8 through 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you rule over us and that indeed you know what is best for us. And we thank you so much, Father, for sending your Son to die for the forgiveness of our sins, to lay down his life for us, his people, that we may enter into your blessed eternal kingdom. Oh, Lord, would you help us to say no to our sin and yes to Christ always as our King. In his name we pray. Amen.